sure, lessons come in many forms, right? And one of the least powerful ones is just telling people, like, you need to do this, or here's the way it goes. Like, yeah, sure, you can you can give people guidelines and some ideas to work with. But the most powerful ones, I think, at least in this father-son relationship, are just my actions. And I am acutely aware that he is watching. Audio Life, the podcast that tells your story in your words. I'm your host today, Carrie Purcell, and today, on April 19th, 2023, I get to speak with Joseph Edward Barks. Hi, Joe. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Carrie. Glad to be here. Excited to see uh, where this uh, interview goes. Awesome. I'm excited too, Joe. So, you and I first met during our MBA at Quantic School of Business and Technology, but we've, we've never actually met, like not in person. Mm-hmm. Um, we've worked on some school projects together. We've done business planning. I hear a little about your weekends and your family, but really, I don't know that much about you from the perspective of an audio life interview. So I'm really excited today because we're going to record some of your most important memories and moments, things that I know your son will cherish learning about as he grows older, the aspects of life that help to form and inform who you are. And you've helped to frame the the themes that we want to look at today. So things like on becoming or rites of passage, um, how you were raised, kinship and marriage, the making of a family, fear and learning through courage, uh, memory, so the things you'll never forget, and identity, the factors that made you who you are. So let's start at the beginning. I want to ask where you were born and, and is there a story behind your name? Um, but yeah, so I was born at uh, UCLA Hospital in Westwood, California, or Los Angeles. Our last name has um, quite the unique spelling, and my dad, having uh, had that same last name his whole life, knew he was. we were all, as kids, going to have to spell it. So my parents decided they would all give us very ordinary, up-the-middle, common <laughs> names so that we didn't also have to spell our first name. So I, the youngest of four children mm-hmm. and was given the name Joseph. I have a twin brother, so, um, but he, he likes to um, remind me that we had a wrestling match to see who would make it out of the womb first. And he <laughs> won that. So technically by 16 minutes, I am the youngest of four children. Wow. So you grabbed part of my second question, which was, is there a story about your birth? Um, that was a really cool story. Is there, is there anything else you want to add to that question? Well, yeah. So I I was born in 1969, and that was before uh, some of the medical technology that's very commonplace these days, like ultrasounds. And so my mother didn't know she was having twins until really um, towards the end of her pregnancy. And she had gone in to see her OB-GYN, who had delivered her other two children. He's got the stethoscope, and he's like, hey. He calls in the nurse. He's like, hey, come here. Gets the nurse, gives her a second uh, stethoscope. He's like, do you hear a heartbeat over there? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, cool. I hear another one over here. Hey, March Marks, you're having twins. And um, I don't know exactly what week that was, but uh, from what I've been told, that was fairly far into the pregnancy. So then, you know, we uh, are born and my mom likes to um, tease my dad that, uh, 
he was so proud of having twin boys that uh, he went around talk like bragging about it. Like he was the only one that ever had twin boys. <laughs> um, so obviously I don't quite recall that, but uh, it's, it's fun to hear how happy pleased my dad was to uh, round out the family with twins at the end. No, I love that. And, and your mom, how did she, I imagine she had a little, maybe double the work she was planning. How did she handle that? Yeah. So I think they were always planning on having, um, several kids. My, my dad's the oldest of six. My mom was an only child. And so, you know, she didn't really know what it was like to have a bunch of kids in that household from any sort of personal point of view. And my dad thought that it would be great to have a large family, but uh, yeah, after uh, I think, you know, having twins on top of having two other small children in the house, um, you know, I think we can all imagine how much work that would have been. That was, that was the end of it. So I get to be the baby of the family. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. So tell me, so there's four, four kids. You're the youngest. Tell me kind of the birth order age range. Yeah. So my oldest brother is uh, Michael. And he's five and a half years older than me and my twin. And then we have a sister in the middle who's three and a half years older than me. So Michael, Susan, and then me and my brother, Johnny. Awesome. I imagine as we go through this conversation, we're going to hear more about your family and your upbringing and and important moments in your life. I'm curious, so your father today, how is child rearing different today than when you were a child? Um, you know, that's, there's obviously, uh, from generation to generation, I think there's some pretty observable, um, differences in how parenting's approached. I grew up in a pretty traditional household. My dad was a very focused businessman. He had gotten his MBA at UCLA and then embarked on his career with IBM. So he was kind of, um, the outset of the whole tech industry and, uh, joining IBM in the early 60s as he was starting a family and starting his career. So he was very focused and actually worked for IBM for over 30 years and rose through the ranks of of um, their sales department. Uh, he did take a brief hiatus to do some teaching inside of IBM, but uh, ultimately the bulk of his career was sent, uh, spent in sales. And then my mom was a stay-at-home mom who had worked prior to having kids. And um, I was always told that, you know, her paycheck is the savings they were able to scrape together to buy their first house. And then they had, you know, kids in fairly short order after that. And so she was the quintessential stay-at-home mom, right? Always uh, home-cooked meals and fresh-baked cookies and, you know, making sure we got to soccer practice and all of our activities. My parents were not overly involved, but but very consistent, wanting to make sure that they were always cheering us on at our events. And so then, you know, eventually, as, as we got older, my mom went back to work part time. But uh, the bulk of my childhood is definitely that my dad was, you know, leave early in the morning in a three piece suit and go out and, you know, close deals for IBM and come home. And my mom would have dinner waiting for him. And, uh, you know, all along the way, she was you know, working hard to take care of all of us. So it was um, quite a uh, fun childhood, consistently supportive parents. And I look at, you know, how it is today, you know, and how I approach it. First of all, I only have one one child. So that uh, definitely 
is a dynamic, uh, right, where I can focus all of my attention on my only son. And the fact that, you know, we've got technology and work from home is quite commonplace now versus, you know, my dad having to get in a car in L.A. and battle traffic every day. Uh, My son doesn't know that people go to work. I've worked (laughs) from home since uh, since he was born. And so I do get um, loving interruptions from sweet little boy. And so it's nice to be around and also just to uh, help my wife out. She's uh, also been a stay at home mom for the last five years. You know, there's the whole like punishment, right? That your parents that were born in the thirties, right? Raised in the fifties, what they deem to be a reasonable and uh, appropriate punishment from a parent. I don't approach things that way with my son. Not to not to criticize other approaches, but you know we definitely try and take a um, a loving approach that hopefully uh, that parenting message that that uh, lesson you're trying to impart to create a well adapted human being right to society uh, when he becomes an adult that uh, you know hopefully those those lessons settle in so yeah. we can all be you know proud of who he becomes right as parents. I think you, I think you, I think you gave a, you know, a really clear picture of, of a time and a life that you experienced and tied it back into what life looks like for you today. And it's, it's a little bit different. Um, And of course we expect that, but these moments to reflect and be intentional about what you're trying to achieve are really important. At least they are there to, to me, they are to audio life. So here's one picking up on what you just said. Um, How would you advise your younger self? Hmm. One of the lessons uh, I would advise my younger self is to have courage, right? Just to go after your dreams. You know, when I was younger and just getting into um, business and entrepreneurial endeavors in my 20s, my, my dad, who had followed more of a traditional corporate career path, he, you know, took me aside and said, you know, I think it's great you're doing this. Like, just go for it. Even if you lose everything, like you have plenty of time to rebuild and figure it out. Like just follow mm-hmm. your dreams. So I would say, right, there's two forms of regret in life, right? We all have some actions we may have done that that we have mm-hmm. a little regret for um, mm-hmm. that, you know, and hopefully a lesson learned from that. But I think the stronger form of regret is all the things that we didn't try, that we didn't do because of fear, lack of courage, whether it's, you know, asking that person out that you have a crush on fast forward into adulthood, right? Pursuing your entrepreneurial dreams and, and career passions versus feeling stuck in a yeah. organization that's not fulfilling. Um, so I would say overall that the lesson I would reiterate is just have courage. And I don't mean courage in terms of being reckless or irrational, but just understanding what's going to be fulfilling or what really drives you as a person and just trying to tap yeah. into that and follow your heart, follow your intuition. I was at a um, meditation retreat many years ago and they were reading like a memoir, like advice from, from an older woman who was reflecting on her life and lessons that she would want to impart to her younger self. Yeah. And one that stood out uh, that I still remember to this day. And I think about from time to time is, she said, I would rather have more real problems and less imaginary problems. 
that rung true, right? Because I think we can all yeah. get into situations in our head where we have, oh, these narratives, right? These, these negative narratives that uh, those don't serve us, right? In, in creating a fulfilling, interesting life. Um, so here I am. I'm squarely middle-aged and I'm still embracing the fact that I'd rather have more real problems and less imaginary ones. Yeah. Still trying to figure that out. No, that's amazing. I I know we're going to dig into that more through a series of other questions, um, but I'm going to pull us back to that younger version of you. And I want to know, what was it like when you first left home? Hmm. At 18, I went off to college. You know, it's a bit of a transition there for, for everyone, right? You've kind of, I lived in this, you know, very stable home. I lived in the same home my entire life from the day I was born till the day I left for school. And, and my parents still live in that yep. same home they've been in, you know, for over 50 years. But yeah, I went away to school and school was, you know, challenging, but manageable. I was also uh, an athlete in college and that was very demanding at the division one level. I was ready to work as hard as could be. Um, but still was just in over my head because I was competing against people that were clearly way more talented than I was. And so, you know, that, that created a certain amount of stress just from the sheer physical requirements of daily training for division one mm-hmm. athletics on top of, you know, full course loads and then trying to make new friends. So actually my freshman year in college was not a great experience for me overall. And mm-hmm. I, um, decided to transfer. And so funny enough, right, my twin brother and I, you know, we were super close, even to the point of like having our own secret language as babies. You know, my mom would say we'd be in the crib and we would just say these terms and we'd just laugh at each other, right? These made up words that we had as babies. Um, You know, as we got older, right, there was a lot of bickering and fighting. So we decided we were not going to go to the same school, no matter what. Mm It was our first chance to get apart from each other, right? Like having shared the womb, same schools and uh, same friend group, you know, for all these years. So he said, here's the deal. I'm going to UC Santa Barbara. You can go anywhere else in the universe. And I said, that's great. You've tagged your territory. So I decided I wanted to be a little more adventurous and get out of state. So I went to school in the Midwest, Mm -hmm. did not have a great experience in I had visited my brother in a few of the breaks that we had from fall break, Thanksgiving, Christmas, somewhere in there. I had gone to visit him a couple times. And I was like, okay, it's January. (laughs) It's the middle of winter. I'm heading back to the Midwest. I definitely drew the short straw here on this college choice. So uh, I got back beginning a second semester and just decided this wasn't for me and I needed to transfer. And so I had to call him and asked for permission. I was like, hey, bro, <laughs> do you think I could transfer to UC Santa Barbara? Like, would that be okay? Because that's your territory. And he said, yeah, as long as we don't have to live together. I was like, <laughs> okay. So luckily, I got in there and had a fantastic rest of my college experience. I uh, can't imagine it being any better than what I experienced at UCSB for myself. But then the funniest thing is my brother and I ended up having the same exact major and taking classes together for (laughs) really the remainder of college quite frequently and collaborating on projects at a time, right? Like as a teenager, 
uh, with all that stuff going on, there was times when, you know, he was like my worst enemy. Um, but to get back to the beginning, of your question is what was life like when I left home? I realized that my twin brother was actually my best friend. That's an awesome conclusion. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. I have a follow-up question. It's it's not a leading question. I don't know. I don't know what your answer will be. Uh, which member of your family did you have the most treasured relationship with? Uh, you know, I am grateful that I can say that I have truly a great relationship with all of my siblings. Fairly diplomatic by nature, and I'm not one to hold a grudge. So, you know, things, friction, things that might have happened in our childhood, not important to me, um, you know, if there were negative things. And then I think, you know, we can all look back and have um, all sorts of cool experiences. But but truly, they're, they're kind of unique, right? So I have the big brother, right? The big brother, Michael, and... You know, we always looked up to him. We all, me and my twin brother always did whatever he was doing, right? So if he was skateboarding, playing basketball, surfing, running, we wanted to do those activities and we followed in his footsteps. And um, if it was, you know, my taste in music was heavily influenced by whatever my brother was listening to, right? Because if I'm 10 or 12 and I'm just starting to, you know, think that rock and roll is cool. Well, you know, what are you, you're listening to what your, you know, five and a half year old brother's listening to, right? Heavy influence from him. And to this day, we actually now uh, work together and have found a way to um, collaborate with really some fun complementary skill sets. So, um, you know, here we are as middle-aged professionals and, and collaborating uh, in really a quite a productive and enjoyable way. Um, then I only have, you know, one sister and we've always just been close. She's easy to like open up to. She can be my confidant, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, she's a, a therapist, right? So it's in her nature to uh, draw your emotions and your thoughts out of you, hopefully in a cathartic way, right? Um, yeah. way she's trained. Now, not that she necessarily employs all of her professional training into our relationship, but, you know, uh, that's clear, right? When you're trained and you've been do, doing that profession for decades. Um, so she's great uh, just as a, as a confidant and someone who I've shared just some really fun adventures with. And then, and then you've got, you know, a twin brother, right? And that relationship um, is by definition unique, right? Sharing the womb with someone creates a connection that, uh, is impossible to recreate in any other any other way. Um, but like I said, you know, we figured out we were best friends, studied the same major. Um, we've uh, at times lived very close to each other. Other other times in our life, not so much. But um, so yeah, I can't I can't just single out one. Gen- genuinely, I can't single out one sibling. I appreciate all of them. No, that's wonderful. And are there any secrets about relatives in your family that you found out later in life? Hmm. Secrets. I don't know. I know um, my dad was in the Marines. That was a a thing, right? That everyone had to go into the military. So my dad went into a form of like an ROTC program between his undergraduate and his graduate work. And um, he was... um, 
second lieutenant, first lieutenant, and he was uh, a directly uh, supervised or whatever the military term is, a famous person named Lee Harvey Oswald. And so uh, we have a picture of, um, you know, my dad and Lee Harvey in the same little platoon or whatever that was. So that's uh, interesting. My mom, uh, when she was working before, actually before my parents got married, and then in those early years, she worked at the Rand Corporation, right, which is a famous think tank. And she was, I think we'd call her an administrative professional now. She was uh, back then a secretary. And she worked with James Doolittle, right, the uh, general that had uh, engineered some of the uh, bombing raids on uh, Japan that were instrumental in um, the U.S. being victorious in the Pacific Theater. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if those are secrets technically, and I don't know if there's some other dirty laundry that's never been presented <laughs> to me, but um, those are a couple things that I always thought was like kind of interesting, like it wasn't talked about frequently, but, you know, I was brought up at some point. I was like, oh, okay. My parents like, you know, randomly like connected with people that were pretty instrumental in a certain yeah. part of, you know, American history. Yeah, definitely interesting. Did you have expectations, or I suppose, what were your expectations of marriage and romance? Yeah, so expectations, right, are certainly, I think, our strongest uh, uh, influence on that is your family upbringing. And, um, you know, I was blessed to be in a family. My parents have been married for, um, let's see, their anniversary is coming up here in a couple days and they will have been married for 62 years. Wow. And so, um, you know, grew up in that kind of just classic stable household with, uh, loving parents. And of course, um, you know, it wasn't like our upbringing was out without bickering or, you know, some sort of marital friction. I think that would be a fantasy to, uh, say that, uh, you know, there wasn't times when I didn't observe some, you know, call it fighting, not uh, anything physical or overly abusive, but, uh, you know, disputes, arguments, my parents. And, um, you know, probably a lot of that just stemmed from, you know, the stress of, of trying to raise a family and the, the finances that come along with that. But, uh, you know, there was definitely a strong example of commitment and love, um, dedication, family orientation. And then also, I think pop culture, right? The the media, the stuff we consume, right? Also um, plays a part in how your, your expectations of these institutions are. And so, you know, whatever I might've grown up with in the seventies and eighties, right? And from movies and whatnot, um, there's all the classic jokes about marriage and in-laws and all those things, right? That probably um, I picked up uh, some some of those uh, concepts along the way. But, um, you know, I became an adult and I got married to my sweetheart. I was living over in Europe after I, I graduated from college. I, I moved to Europe shortly after that and um, uh, met a girl in the Czech Republic. And, you know, we dated for quite a few years, six, seven years. And then, and then we got married. So we were married for another, I don't know, seven years or something like that before we amicably parted ways with the divorce. So that was like, okay, I'm married. It yeah. wasn't easy. Um, fortunately, we didn't have some crazy divorce, but uh, just wasn't meant to be. And so 
then I was like, at the time, I remember, I'm never getting married again. You know, <laughs> this is just not for me. And I think, you know, people that have been through breakups can probably um, reflect back and remember having some similar feelings. And I remember a wise uh, person saying, well, you know, that's that's great. That's how you feel now. But, you know, those feelings may change. Right. So, you know, maybe just keep an open mind. And I was like, oh, maybe that's good advice. Yeah, maybe maybe. Right. Uh, my feelings will change. And. So fortunately they did. At some point I got back out there and started dating and I met uh, the woman who's now uh, my wife and the mother of our beautiful son, Drake. So uh, Ashley and I uh, dated for a few years, um, uh, proposed. She got to plan her dream wedding. She's, she's a Southern belle from Louisiana. So we had a uh, quite a wonderful uh, wedding down there in South Louisiana, and uh, we're coming up on our 10-year anniversary. Even to this day, um, being blessed to be married to a wonderful person, uh, I think most people will agree marriage is not without its challenges or struggles. Um, You know, it's a lot, right? You have to rely on that person and have a partnership. You know, trust is not the thing we struggle with, right? But it's, um, we're two different people. Uh, wired very differently. And, you know, sometimes that can be uh, a great thing, right? To, again, have kind of complementary approaches and views of life, but also it can bring up friction when people don't do things the way you like them done or the way you would expect them to do it. So for me, it's about an ongoing thing of, of not only the fundamental, like, patience that's involved in um, those partnerships, but just trying to see things and put myself in my wife's shoes, right? So that instead of just trying to force on her my perspective and the way things should be done. But, um, but yeah, uh, that dedication, um, I think it pays huge dividends. So, you know, I'm happy to continue that endeavor. Wonderful. And now for a word from our sponsors. Ready to share your stories and life philosophy or capture those of a parent or grandparent? Or maybe a corporate package is right for you to build connection across your workforce and add value to your clients. Visit audiolife.io today to learn more. Our listeners will get 10% off using discount code GIFT10 and order number Audiolife Podcast. Audiolife, where memories find their voice. Well, we're going to shift a little bit. You had identified a theme that you were interested in talking about fear and learning courage through fear. So, We're going to ask you at a few different points in your life, some questions about experiences and some learnings. And the first is just, what were you most fearful of as a child? Hmm. You know, just some of the probably typical stuff, right? Like uh, stage fright, right? Like performance, Mm -hmm. like, oh my God, I have to get up and perform. Um, But not not overly, but, uh, you know, I think probably I... I dealt with some of that, but overall, right. I was, I was in a very supportive, stable environment and, and school came pretty easy to me. Um, I, you know, enjoyed sports. I was not an amazing athlete, but you know, above average. Right. So it wasn't like that fear of going up there and striking out or being, you know, the worst kid on the team. So I don't really have a lot of fears from childhood. You know, I think if you fast forward into adult life, right, like uh, some of these things become much more real. 
Well, one of the questions is, what are you fearful of today? Um, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, right, as a parent, there's always like the yeah. safety of your child. Um, and not overly, right? Like my wife and I aren't like neurotic or obsessive about um, about Drake's safety. But, you know, we we do think about it, right? You want to make sure that he's in a um, environment that's that's safe. And um, just you know, praying for for his safety and well being frequently. But um, yeah, in our society, I I I think right there were times when not so much fear of finances, right, but just different times in life in my career struggles with how do I buy a house? How do I save for retirement? How do I enjoy a lifestyle I want? And it creates a little bit, well, if I do this and I do it wrong, like it's going to be a big problem. Um, but I have learned to kind of realize that um, there's a long pattern uh, for most people, right? That things have always worked out. So um, I just tell myself when I face those moments of fear, doubt, or uncertainty, that the pattern will most likely continue and that things will continue to work out. Um, so I just have to re- remind myself when when fears of any shape or sort um, pop into my mindset that I can, you know, just uh, give myself the the perspective of looking back and going, well, um, you can deal with this, right? It might not be whatever the situation is. It might not be fun. It might not be comfortable, but it's not going to ruin your life as, you know, so just deal with it, right, in a, in a reasonable in sometimes courageous way. Yeah. So you've, you've very much answered a question that I have for you, but I, I'm going to ask it in case there's more that you want to say about it. So what strategies or rituals do you use to cope with fear? And you did speak to that, but I still want to Yeah. So, you know, like I mentioned, right. Um, to continue to tell myself that real problems are better than imaginary ones mm-hmm. and that, um, you know, things should continue to work out. Um, but I think the other thing is when, when it does come time to make a decision, right? Because there can be fear at which fork in the road do I take, right? Whether it's a career choice or uh, different things in relationship. I try and tap into my intuition. I really just give mm-hmm. myself a chance to disengage from, you know, the daily uh, concerns and, and grind and just give myself the space mentally and emotionally to really tap into what I think is truly in my heart or what I, what I'm feeling will lead to a desired outcome or will take me down a positive path in life. So I can definitely think about a few uh, points in my life where, where intuition has just said, this is the choice to make. And I've just done that and not tried to second guess myself uh, when I've taken that fork. Yeah. What's been your bravest act? Hmm. Bravest act. Well, uh, recently I'm proud of myself for, uh, at the end of last year, I quit my corporate gig. Um, It wasn't a bad company or anything, but it wasn't an organization I thought I would continue to thrive in, in terms Mm -hmm. of a fulfilling uh, career thing. And so I took that leap and quit the gig and started my own marketing agency you know, I just wake up so much happier now, uh, so much more fulfilled that I 
know I'm controlling my day and my schedule and where I'm directing my energy and that uh, I can just follow my own creative ideas and put those into play in an effective business form to hopefully you know produce results that will support my family. That would be kind of one of the more recent ones, right, within this last six months. Um, but, you know, I've made other, other choices along the way that um, I don't know if I'd necessarily term them courageous, but, but there was a definitely a definitive, like, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And I just pushed ahead. And but that's, that's sure. what I got. Great. Well, let's shift a little bit to memories, things you'll never forget. Okay. Um, let's, let's start early. So what is your earliest memory? Yeah, so I have um, I have some memories of preschool and kindergarten. Um, they're not necessarily good ones, though. I remember my twin brother and I were, for whatever reason, we weren't the most well-behaved uh, little boys in that three, four, five-year-old zone. So much so that at our preschool, they um, they said, "Yeah, your kids are beating up other kids in the playground." You. Um, we need them to go see a child psychologist before we can have them come back to school. So I remember going at it's probably like four years old, maybe five, uh, going to some person's office and having them, you know, talk to me, put toys out, assess me. And I think they, they came back with, um, yeah, there's nothing really that disturbing or wrong with these kids. They can go back to school. And I think though, uh, we did have some episodes in the playground in kindergarten that, um, were very frowned upon. I think I ended up in the principal's office more than once. Uh, but fortunately, I think by first grade, we, uh, we, we hit stable ground and were able to be, uh, you know, better behaved kids and more focused students. So those are some early memories. More on the fun side, um, I remember my dad taking me, just me and my twin brother. Um, so frequently my dad would, you know, spend that one-on-one time, um, my brother, my sister doing those father, son, father, daughter stuff. So with my twin brother and I, it was always one-on-two for obvious reasons. But I remember him taking us up to a local mountain to go sledding and uh, do those inner tubes down the slope. And, and you climb up and you sled down and it's cold. And back then, we didn't have all this like technical apparel, right? In the mid-70s, yeah. it was like Scotch guard your jeans if you were lucky with some sneakers on. But uh, I remember doing that. And then um, a few months ago, we were up in the same area to go skiing uh, for my wife's birthday. That's what she wanted to do, was do a little ski getaway. So we took Drake uh, to his first ski lesson and all that. And when we were headed home, I knew where the sledding spot was, the same spot my dad took me to all those years ago. And um, we went as a family and went sledding at the same spot. Drake had a blast. We all had a blast. And I remember calling my parents when we were done and I was like, Hey, guess where I'm at? And, you know, I don't always get my dad or both my mom and dad on the phone at the same time. And I was like, Hey, we're up here, big bear and we're sledding. And I was like, dad, remember? And he's like, yeah, I remember it took you. You were like five, maybe six years old, about the same age as Drake. So that's a funny memory that I got to kind of bring full circle recently. Those are some of the early childhood stuff. And then we also, you know, just did a lot of sports growing up, um, the classic, right? T-ball and youth soccer mm-hmm. and uh, basketball. My dad put a, um, 
basketball court in our backyard when we were kids and, and coached us a bit when we were younger. So that was always like kind of a, a, a big deal in our household was basketball. But um, I also grew up during that um, running craze, right? In the late 70s, early 80s in the United States, there was this like running boom and all these 10Ks and marathons. There'd be tons of people out doing it. So my dad had been a runner. My older brother got into it. So that meant my twin brother and I got into it. And we went to run all these races when I was in like second, third, fourth grade. Uh, we'd go and participate in these 10Ks. I ran a, a few marathons there at age nine and 10. So lots of memories of just getting in the station wagon early in the morning and my mom piling in her three sons, so right, me and my brothers, and driving to wherever that 10K or that race happened to be mm. and all of us running it and then, you know, going to get breakfast afterwards and then coming back and, you know, probably playing in a basketball game that afternoon. So just lots of memories of going around and doing sports as a, as a kid. Yeah. So the follow-up question is just what are the strongest memories from when you were a teenager? Does that cross over that same time period? Yeah, I mean that that was that would be kind of more the the elementary school year. So as a teenager, you know, middle school got more into like skateboarding and surfing. Still played basketball and soccer, but uh time we got to high school, it was clear that I was not going to be a basketball star. I had kind of dropped out of playing soccer, you know, on any sort of organized competitive level. But I had the genes to be a runner. Um, so I ran cross country and track all the way through high school. And that's, you know, the sport I participated in in college um, that first year. So, yeah, a lot of memories of training, right? That's a six, seven days a week training. Um, yeah. So that's a, that's a pretty consistent, you know, just part of my life all the way through high school. Of course, just blessed it. You know, I had a lot of friends growing up. I still have uh, my best friends since first grade. Um, we're still friends to this day. So I had a pretty consistent set of friends since we didn't move and a lot of the friends didn't move away. So, you know, just a lot of memories of just, you know, being teenagers goofing off with the same, same people I'm still friends with today. Right. So it was whether uh, going to the beach and surfing, getting to go to concerts, growing up in LA. Uh, my parents were cool. They, once we were old enough to drive, like they'd let us drive to Hollywood and go catch a concert you know, doing stuff with my brothers and, and friends. Think back to some of the just the cool bands we got to see in the 80s. And, uh, but yeah, a lot of cross country and track meets. School, you know, school was, was definitely part of the mix. I wasn't cutting class. I was, I was a good student, but not to the point where I was just, you know, a bookworm. Like it came fairly easy to me. So it was just like, okay, if this is easy, I might as well just do well. Having fun. Fun, you know, and going to parties on weekends, right? And, you know, silly shenanigans that teenagers would do. It was a pretty typical high school years, not nothing really too outrageous. I did I did want to um add one kind of uh memory from my adult life that I think is um kind of unique. So I did international sales for quite a few years and I had gone to Asia. We were in China for a trade show, trying to figure out a strategy to enter, you know, that massive Chinese market for this footwear company I was working for. And we were also looking to uh, expand in other countries. So we had a uh, partnership in Japan that wasn't fully panning out. 
So I said, hey, on my way back from China, I'm going to fly to Japan. I, I got a meeting with the largest sporting goods dealer in Japan, um, Irasaki Sports. So my boss was like, yeah, great. Yeah, just do that. So I um, get on the flight out of, I think we're in Beijing, fly to Tokyo, land, get the train into Tokyo. And the moment I arrive at Shinjuku train station in Tokyo, the busiest train station in the world, was when they um, massive uh, Tokyo or uh, Japanese uh, Sendai earthquake hit back Mm -hmm. in 2012 in uh it was march of 2012 and um i i don't know what's going on i don't speak japanese so i get out of the train and japanese typically as a culture pretty like stoic but i see people like running like getting out of the train and i'm like oh, was there everyone in a hurry they were probably announcing right on the loudspeaker that hey there's an earthquake like you know get out of the building get out of the underground I didn't know. So I'm like, geez, people are in a hurry. What's going on? And I come up out of the ground and I'm looking for the taxi stand. And um, the first wave of the earthquakes hit. And I go to the taxi driver. Hey, can you take me to my hotel? I show him. And I pronounce. He's like, oh, sure. And if you've been to Tokyo, like the taxis are older vehicles, right? They're mostly not these modern vehicles. So get the luggage in, the car. I get in. We're driving up this ramp and the car's like doing this. And I'm like, what is going on? And the driver doesn't really speak English, but I come out and there's people in the streets everywhere. They've evacuated these buildings. There's these skyscrapers and I'm looking up and the skyscrapers are like doing this. And the people are like all pointing up. And then I see some debris from buildings that's fallen in the street. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God. There's an earthquake going. And mind you, this is just happening. So like the tsunami that caused all that massive destruction has not happened yet. So I get to my hotel and um, I get in there and there's like young people in the hospitality industry working behind the desk. And they're like doing their best to keep it together. But the chandeliers, like the lights are just swinging in the lobby Mm -hmm. and there's tourists that are from, you know, wherever Europe that are just sitting on the couches in the lobby, like hands on their head, totally distraught, have no idea what to do. And I'm going, Hey, I'm from California, like earthquakes, like <laughs> not that, you know, we're experiencing them every week, but I'm like, what's going on? So I go to the front desk and I say to the guy, I said, Hey, we got two options at this point. Are we evacuating or are you checking me in? I'm going to defer to your lead. And he's like, oh, yes, sir. We can check you in. I, uh, I'm i in like, I don't know, the 15th floor of this, this building, maybe higher. And the, of course, the elevator's not working. And I had shipped uh, samples for my business meeting to the hotel. And they're like, oh, we have this box for you. And I got my luggage. So they helped me take it like all the way up, right? These 15 flights, get to my hotel. I'm like, let me get on the internet. Let me find out what's happening in English. And, um, oh yeah, big earthquake. So aftershocks are happening, the beds moving, the stuff. So finally I'm like, okay, I'm going to go get some food. I go out, go back down. And there's like one of these, um, big screen TVs, like kind of like, you know, Times Square or whatever. Hmm. And now 
the tsunami's hit, the wave is hit, and everyone is just mm-hmm. like, oh my God, what is happening? Like, this is obviously just a massive natural disaster. So it was like, okay, crazy. So the rail lines have buckled, transportation, these, you know, arteries that um, serving, you know, a city of 14 million commuters, they're broken down. So people are just like lined up around the block to try and get on the few buses that can run. It's just chaos, just gridlock, people everywhere. But I'm still like sort of oblivious, right? Because I'm just not getting like updates in my language. I'm just observing what's going on and, and I'm by myself. And it was before kind of like where you would just pull out your phone. I mean, I had an iPhone, but it wasn't like, yeah. you know, the connectivity um, 10 years ago that we have today in the news sources. So um, I go to dinner. It ended up like, being an amazing trip, I, I got a sightsee in Tokyo. I just rented a bike and went all over the city eating amazing, delicious food, seeing all the sights in Tokyo, having a really cool adventure. But like aftershock after aftershock, so much so that when I like finally got home, I would wake up in my bed for a couple nights, like feeling like, mm. oh my God, like it took a, several days to kind of get out of my system. But the timing of my arrival was perfect. If my flight had been an hour later, I would have been stuck somewhere way outside of Tokyo and not able to get in because the rail lines were buckled and trains couldn't go. And then the nuclear meltdown that ensued from the tsunami and the damage that um, hadn't quite started yet. Um, So I went, had an amazing time, did my business meeting, and then they had canceled all these flights over the weekend. I wouldn't have been able to get out anyway. And then the airport resumed normal service the day I was leaving. So I was able to get a bus to the airport and fly out. And then the very next day, the nuclear meltdown started to happen and people were freaking out and all went to the airport. And it was complete mayhem at the airport the very next day. And I remember like flying home and going, reading this in the, in the, you know, on the news so it was just like the, the timing, the serendipity mm-hmm. of the timing couldn't have been better. And obviously, you know, a lot of sadness and empathy and mourning for the people that were uh, deeply affected by that natural disaster. But for me, it was just this weird experience of being a fly on the wall for, mm-hmm. you know, arguably the largest earthquake ever recorded in the ensuing damage. But meanwhile, I actually really have great memories of, of visiting Tokyo, and I, um, I can't wait to go back. So anyway, um, I, yeah. I just thought I would throw that in there because it's, it's kind of a, an interesting, different memory that uh, um, you know, I don't think too many people could uh, claim to have that one other than obviously your people that lived through it in Japan. Yeah, what an incredible story. Is there a song or even a food that triggers memories for you? Well, like, yeah, for the, the um, childhood, right? Uh, my mom cooked a lot of home-cooked meals, but of course, like a lot of teenagers or whatever, fast food was regular part of the, the diet thing, right? So Taco Bell runs, McDonald's, like, you know, um, some classic restaurants that uh, were there my entire childhood growing up in our neighborhood. It's a Mexican restaurant called The Red Onion. Um, that was the classic place to, like, take your your first date in high school, like, Oh, I'll take her to the red onion. That'll impress her. They have good chips and salsa. There was a little, uh, like Italian deli 
uh, called the appetizer. So those types of foods um, definitely kind of trigger some of that nostalgia. But then fortunately, at some point in high school, when I wanted to you know, perform better as an athlete, I cleaned up my diet on the recommendation of someone that was a successful athlete and was just like, yeah, did you ever think about not eating Taco Bell and maybe, you know, eating something more healthy? I was like, mm-hmm. you, maybe you got a point, you know, my 17 year old metabolism can handle anything. But, and so at that point I did uh, get on uh, more of a lifelong habit of eating healthier, but no, just like, Certain smells, because, uh, you know, I live here in the San, North County, San Diego, and so it's, you know, same climate as where I grew up in, in L.A. Spending all those hours out running, there's a certain um, smell with, because we would always go on the trails, like the eucalyptus leaves. Mm-hmm. When I smell that now, it brings me back to memories of those hours of being on the trails and that same smell of, you know, the bark and the trees and and it takes me back to some of those memories of training yeah smell is, is uh, can be so strong can completely transport you can't it so let's shift into our section on identity what aspect of your life has had the most influence on your identity hmm. yeah i mean i think the heaviest influences are you know that childhood, that context, those, those things that you're brought up with, um, while not solely being the only uh, forces at play, but, you know, certainly um, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You know, you could probably find a lot of similarities between me and my father. Um, and, you know, going back to some of the things we already discussed, just of uh, family life and how the examples that were set for me are a lot of what, you know, we integrate into our family here. But yeah, you know, my identity, I'm a business person. I enjoy sports, right? Just the, the fun of it, right? The challenge, working with other people, right? And team sports or the individual sports, right? The the mindset that takes to to do that. I would say part of my identity, uh, at least for a lot of years, right, was in international sales for 20 plus years. I lived in Europe for nine years, uh, basically all of my 20s into my early 30s. Uh, That was instilled in me from a young age by my dad, who loved to travel. Um, Mm. So he, you know, has been to over 40 countries. I've been to over 40 countries now. So I think part of that identity for me was that I am this international sales guy, that I've been to all these places that I've I've yeah. worked with tons of different cultures that I speak a few different languages that I've gotten to go to places that, you know, aren't a lot of people's bucket lists that I've already checked a lot of those boxes. Um, so certainly there was, you know, a lot of that influence that was set up by my dad and his approach. And he didn't like by any stretch force it on us, but, you know, he introduced us to travel, international travel at, you know, a fairly young age. And I happened to just feel like, oh, this is cool. This is fun. I, I want to explore the world. I kind of want to see what's around the corner, but the corner that's thousands of miles away. Right. So I would say that, but then, you know, from just more of like, Hey, we're all individuals, right? Like we come out of the womb with, you know, whatever the scientists will tell you, right? Like 400 already defined personality traits. So for me, more as an adult was 
tapping into my creativity. And so while I can't claim to be, you know, some accomplished artist or musician or writer, I did study literature and creative writing in college, which if you'd asked me when I was younger, that that was what I was going to study, I would say no way. But I really found a great love for just um, trying to be creative and just come up with stuff out of nothing, right? And writing in particular. But then as I got further into business, it was always like, well, what's the solution here? And it was always like, can we find a creative solution to the problem, right? Do we, we don't just have to go to what other people have done. Um, so for me, I think, you know, part of what I would like to have as part of my identity is someone that, you know, people see as trying to come up with creative solutions um, in, in their world, in particular in business. But yeah, so that's in a nutshell, I think, um, how I see my identity. Very cool. Have you ever had to adapt your identity, like living in another culture, for example? Yeah, right. That's um, that's interesting. I think when you enter a whole new environment, it gives you a chance to almost hit the reset button. So, mm. you know, if you look at your early years and you're in elementary school and you go to junior high and, and high school, like I said, I was moving along with a lot of the same kids. So some of that follows you around, you know, and you're in high school. It's like, oh, yeah, well, that's Joe Marks and he's, you know this and it's hard to reinvent yourself but when you go to college hey i was able to sort of reinvent myself in terms of you know hey i'm in the midwest i'm this kid from california and you know and then you go pick a new major find new friends uh i could really kind of i i don't know if morphed is the right term but i definitely i think blossomed uh socially in college and became more outgoing. And then, yeah, then you move to Europe, right? And you're like with people you don't share the same culture or language with, and you kind of just have this blank slate and you can just get to be who you are. Uh, I think for me, it was fun to be this American over in that culture, but not in the typical like tourist role, right? Where I'm like on my year rail pass and I'm just going to bars or whatever. But like I was part of a community as this like American expat and then learning the language, integrating myself into the that culture and that community by picking up their language and understanding stark differences between how people were raised or their culture from what I was raised with. And then having fun with their curiosity, right? Like, Oh, America, we, we see that through pop culture. Right. But them genuinely kind of wanting to know more about me and how I was raised. Yeah. You have this, this blank slate to draw on. Um, so that was, um, kind of fun to take advantage of those, those junctures in life to try and present myself as, and connect with people in a way that I thought would, uh, you know, be fulfilling. Hmm. Very interesting. Do you have any unfulfilled ambitions? Yeah, I think as I get older, right? So, uh, you know, as human beings, we're hardwired to want to be of service to others, to, to give, right? I think there's a reason why we innately feel good when you go to volunteer or help someone out, right? And it could just be you know, it's expected, right? Family members, you'll help out and you build rapport with neighbors and you help them out. But, you know, a lot of people go out and 
help people out that they really have no other connection to. They just, out of the goodness of their hearts, they're generous with their time or, you know, some people are in a position to be generous with their, with their money. Um, but really it's that time, right? That interaction with people where you just put your hand up and say, Hey, I'm just here to help. And so I've, I've, you know, I think most people can relate, uh, always gotten a, a great, you know, positive feeling and feel like I got paid back more than I, I gave through that experience. So as soon as I get older, I'm like, Hey, I've been serving my needs a lot. Right. So we can all look back to, mm-hmm. you know, I'll just say self admittedly, right. More selfish years as a teenager, as a college student where, uh, you know, it was a lot of the focus was on yourself and then you enter the work working world and you're trying to build a career and you're trying to, you know, make some money and achieve some financial goals. That is intrinsically a self-centered pursuit. So now as a parent, as the father of a five-year-old, right, there's obviously that commitment, that service that goes into being a parent, which for me is a joy. You know, I love being a father and taking care of my son and, and feel like, you know, I get way more back. But I look at it from like, where do I put my time, right? And so, yeah, I'm squarely focused on some entrepreneurial pursuits right now, which is great, which is exciting. And I think ultimately can, you know, benefit others outside of myself. But at some point, I would like to um, maybe shift my focus and just have more of a service focus Mm -hmm. to what I do with my day. I think that's that's something that... um, ultimately would be rewarding and bring about, you know, a benefit to the greater good. So that's, that's what I'm hoping to kind of manifest that maybe is missing right now is, is less of a focus on career and entrepreneurial pursuits and more of just serving people. Yeah. Well, that's great. And I, and I love how you tied in um, how becoming a father, how having a child has actually impacted your identity in that way and giving you that opportunity to make a shift to being um, in that position of, of service. Yeah. Is there anything you wish younger generations knew about you? Yeah, it'll be interesting, right, to see how the relationship with my son evolves as, as he develops. And, you know, right now he's in childhood, so he gets to be a child and, and hopefully get all these incredible memories but you know what is it what is it going to be like when he's an adult and has his own perspective on the world and uh think of me and what i've done with my life right in our relationship so obviously i'm uh quite optimistic that it's going to continue to be a wonderful relationship although i think a lot of parents will probably tell you like yeah things can get a little rocky when kids are teenagers or uh you know it's not always easy street but um you know so hopefully that uh just that he would see uh, a person, remember a person that, um, you know, was true to his word, authentic, genuine, right? Um, a person of integrity and, you know, that those lessons would be example because it's like, sure, lessons come in many forms, right? And one of the least powerful ones is just telling people, like you need to do this or here's the way it goes. Like, yeah, sure. You can, you can give people guidelines and some ideas to work with, but the most powerful ones, I think, at least in this father son relationship are just my actions. And I am acutely aware that he is watching, you know, so he's watching 
how I interact with his mom, right? And um, how I just interact with people in in society. So I would say that, uh, you know, hopefully he will be able to, you know, pick up on all those things that, that I would gladly tell him or write down for him, but that uh, I think the most powerful way for him to understand who I am uh, is going to be through, through the actions he observed. Yeah. Well, before we close, I do want to give you that chance. Are there any questions you wish I had asked that I haven't or, or a story or a memory that you wanted to share that you haven't had the chance to? Oh, geez. So I jumped the gun with my, uh, with my Tokyo earthquake story. That's okay. Um, (laughs) But yeah, um, it's, uh, well, this has been great for me, right? Uh, It feels like I was invited to a cocktail party where uh, I was requested to talk about my favorite subject myself. So (laughs) I appreciate, you know, the conversation, the, the interview, the experience here, and I'm not here to necessarily, um, expound upon some manifesto uh life is inherently this human condition uh there's struggles and challenges that come with it and there's lots of beautiful beautiful things that that come out of life and i think you know we're all in this together right we're all just human beings with our flaws with our doubts with our struggles and we're all just trying to get through this together the cool thing is us being privileged, right? Living in free Western society, uh, affluent cultures, we have so much opportunity to get to do what we want to do. So don't waste your life, right? Doing what someone's telling you to do or what someone else thinks you should do with your life. You should just live how you want to live and enjoy the ride, you know, because really at the end of the day, people aren't looking to judge you, right? For the most part, they just you know, those around you just want to hopefully see you succeed and be happy. So I would say whatever it is, go for it. Yeah. I just, I want to, I want to thank you for spending so much time for sharing your words of wisdom and for sharing your incredible story with us today and with our audio life listeners. So it was really such a pleasure and thank you. Yeah, thank you, Carrie. I appreciated the the opportunity here to chat with you. And yeah, look forward to uh, seeing how this little episode comes out. Absolutely. If you like what you heard today, consider recording your own Audio Life private podcast or giving one to a loved one for a unique and memorable gift. Today, Audio Life listeners will receive 10% off using discount code GIFT10 and order number Audio Life Podcast. Also, remember to rate our show and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.